生，人人生，人生短短一生。Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, it's just going to be a general hangout session, and we're going to be reviewing this Open Theism is Wrong video that I found online. It's it's not like the highest production quality, but it is something to do. It's been a long week, and so it's probably a nice time to sit back, relax, and look at something that's probably a lot of times these Open Theist videos that people put out are just like their own personal rehashing of more popular videos. They're like, oh, I could probably do it better. And then they don't do it better whatsoever. So it's like amateurish. And uh, it's like, I, I don't know who their audience is. I don't know who it's appealing to. But uh, we'll pull up the latest guy that I, I found. And uh, apparently he's like a Seattle dude. That's just his username, Grace Team Seattle, Open Theism Exposed. Um, very very much exposed. I'm, I'm very scared. And uh, he's got a street preacher shirt on. So he's probably like some sort of street preacher who has encountered open theists and then he's gotten very angry or something. It's like, oh man, these open theists going around street preaching. And so he doesn't like that. So uh, I got some friends in the chat. So that's good. A uh, good hangout time today. Let's drink some uh, Coca-Cola. That's uh, pretty good stuff. Corn syrup. Don't drink uh, processed uh, corn oils. Yeah, but let's let's hear what these guys say. I'm going to be teaching this. Cool, is <laughs> Not doing it without you. Okay, praise God. So here we are. Uh, praise God, brother Ron and I. We are here. We are um, doing a teaching today on the limit. And we we can't see. They got a huge whiteboard. It looks like they mapped out all their talking points, uh, just that we can't see it. They have, uh, they're shooting this and they're, they're like cropping the top and bottom with some sort of blur. And so it's, it's not focused right. And it's, it's, it's hard to, hard to uh, visualize what, what they're going over. So their board's doing them no favors except for their own talking points. Limitless foreknowledge of God. Right, brother? Amen. The limitless foreknowledge of God. Uh, we are here to refute to you today this unbiblical um, doctrine of open theism. And we're going to show you how unbiblical this concept is. And by the way, thank you for everybody that's been praying for my back. Um, yeah, we're going to fast forward a little bit. Um, God doesn't know the future. God does not determine... So to him, open theism states that God does not know the future. Now, anytime someone says that to me, it's like, oh, you don't believe God knows the future. I just respond immediately, I know the future. So the question is not about if God knows the future or not, is what kind of knowledge does God have of the future, if any? That's, that's one of the relevant questions. But even more relevant question is, can God think new thoughts? Can God change? Can God acquire new information? Who is God? That that might be a little bit more relevant of a subject, one that I care a little bit more about than these abstract, oh, God doesn't know the future. You're not going to find me defining open theism as saying God does not know the future. It's, uh, it, it's not even like true. A lot of people say God knows all sorts of things about the future. The question is, in what way does he know it and how much? the future of free moral agents 
That's these are the the or God does not know the future of free moral agents. Um, these are the points that they make. Um, God is learning as we are learning about things. Um, this and all this came from from Pinnock. Uh, was it Chuck Pinnock? I believe so. He uh, he. This came you know earlier. I, I love like the ad hoc theorizing about the historicity of uh, open theism. I think uh, the Duluth Bible Church open theism episode does that too. They're like, this came from this and this and this, and and here's the history. These guys are saying it's all Clark Pinnock. Well, maybe. Um, I haven't read much Clark Pinnock, maybe a little bit. Uh, not many other open theists that I know have read much Clark Pinnock. There's a lot of people who've read more McCabe than they have Pinnock, and McCabe was earlier than Pinnock, and so uh, they, they might be rolling in different circles. Here in this century, from Chuck Pinnock, a lot of this has... Yeah, Idol Killers here. It's a general hangout tonight. Uh, I put in the title video, on the thumbnail, Great Expectations, because this random open theist video, I, I took YouTube, and I typed in open theism, and I sorted by recent, and this popped up, so it's incredibly random. Uh, video done by what looks like street preachers talking about open theism. I figured it'd be a nice time just to sit back and relax and just take a look at the, the lower production quality criticisms of open theism. I was going to try to get Warren on today, and I pulled up an old James White video where James White, it's like the highlight clips from the dividing line, and he's like, oh, this Warren McGrew says this and this and this about Pilate and says it's not God's plan whatsoever. It's like, I think you're just making these things up, James White. I don't think Warren would agree with you what you just attributed to him if you had him right in front of you, James White. I was like, maybe I could get Warren on tonight. I don't know what he's up to. He's he's waving high, though. So maybe he exists. Maybe he's he's here somewhere. Has derived within the last hundred-something years. This is not... Uh... Uh, hundreds of years ago, this was unheard of, that people would even be arguing. Yeah, I remember uh, John Calvin was complaining about all the open theists of his time, and Augustine definitely was complaining about people who held less than ideal views about God within his own lifetime. The, the Christians openly criticized popular views of the day about what God was like, if God had a body, that was that was actually a huge concern in the first three centuries A.D. Does God have a body? Not not like not like Jesus, not like uh, Trinitarianism. Like God has a body sitting somewhere in the the either somewhere up there. That was their big debate concern. So I I don't think I don't think they're being very true to the historical uh, claims of open theism. When that's the type of controversy that was around in the first three centuries A.D. Arguing that God's uh, knowledge is, is somehow limited, his foreknowledge is somehow limited. Exactly. It's, it's a ridiculous concept. Um, God knows the end from the beginning. It says in Isaiah, for the words out on the board, Isaiah 4. So you know this is just rehashing of more refined videos on the same subject because they're just hitting certain talking points and the talking points are only coming from their side and so you see a lot of these copycat preachers and what they'll do is they'll rehash the same talking points without looking into it oh what does the open theist respond to this are our claims about isaiah well in isaiah 
what does God declare? The end from what? From the beginning of what? Does the context tell us? And the answer is yes, the context does tell us. It's the beginning of what God says he's going to do and the end result of what God says he's going to do. And the purpose of telling us is so that we know that when it comes to pass, God's the one who did it. It's not about a blanket everything that ever exists, uh, ever and always. Nothing like that. It's about specifically God letting us know that he's active and doing things and giving us a way to falsify claims of power. It's a falsifiability thing. And they take it as a blanket statement. They're like, oh, this is like some sort of metaphysical principle that we just accept and, and we incorporate into our view of God. Whereas in context, it's like, you guys don't believe in me. Uh, here's some reasons and proofs so that you will believe in me. That's a completely different, uh, they're completely rewriting the intentions of the Bible when, when, they're, when they're doing this type of theology. 46 verse 10, that God knows the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that have not yet come to pass. So God's knowledge has no limits at all. <laughs> that, was, that was a pretty big jump. It's like Chris Fisher um, tells us things that are going to happen in the future before they come to the past. Therefore, Chris Fisher has infinite knowledge. That's, that's a pretty big jump, my friends, uh, my street preacher friends, Grace Team Seattle. Zero limits. He's not bound by, uh, you know, certain limitations. God's knowledge is not bound by these things. So God has unlimited knowledge. Warren says, I, so true, I hate it when folks don't think for themselves. And so the question you have to ask is, what kind of value added are these videos? Do they think that they're adding something to the dialogue that wasn't there before? Uh, I, it doesn't seem like they have an interesting spin or take or actually expanding on the talking points. Of course, we're only like three minutes in. So so maybe maybe they're going to wow us. Remember, this this podcast, this, this live talk, this hangout is great expectations. So I have all my hopes and my dreams and my desires in these two individuals that they're going to stun us with their interesting and unique talking points and arguments and thought processes. They're going to dazzle us with their intellect and add to this debate things un, un, since, until now have not been seen in the open theist debate. I wish I had these guys' names. Uh, let's see. How is your pain, brother? I guess they're just called brother. I don't know. Knowledge about future events. Um, we know that all throughout the prophets, it's almost... Brothers and sisters, it's, it's almost sad that Brother Ron and I have to get up here and defend the limitless foreknowledge of God. I, I don't think you had to. I, I, I don't think you're adding anything. You could have linked, you could have like re-hosted like a James White video, maybe like a James White talk. You could just re-upload that on your channel. I don't think James White's going to copyright strike you. Ridiculous. It almost makes me frustrated, brother, because yeah. we should be talking about something else. Exactly. But because this is starting to become a thing to where people are doubting whether or not God knows the future or not, we got to get up here and show you literally, and if we wrote all, all the scriptures, we the have. room itself would not be able to contain the number of scriptures that we would have. There are so many scriptures about how God knows the future. 
All the prophets were prophesying about the future. Exactly. Who gave... Yeah, he's, he's definitely doing this uh, clapping thing. So to emphasize his point, he does a clap, clap, clap. They say, just trust us. We could just fill this room with these verses that supposedly disprove open theism. But it's, it's funny when it comes to debates, you have these weird scenarios in which Will Duffy is the one saying, hey, we just go through the Bible. We find 700 instances of God acquiring information. And this is not even an exhaustive look at the Bible. We're missing a whole bunch of books that are probably going to tell us more about God acquiring information. And and what's the opposing side do? They they grab like two verses. And they're like, well, this half of this one verse here suggests my theory of timelessness. Therefore, we should ignore your 700 verses. That's what happens when it actually comes to debate when you start looking into these things. But I, I do maybe maybe they got a hold of uh, Roy's book. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I. I always just call him Roy, but uh, all his uh, future prophecies that uh, God predicted throughout the Bible, something like that. That might be what they're referring to, but I, I that would be, I don't, I don't think it is. I don't think they're at that level where they even know that that book exists. Those prophets, the wisdom. Amos 3, 7 says that God does nothing, but that he revealeth it unto his servants, the prophets. Yes, God does nothing unless he reveals it to his prophets. And so that verse is actually pretty interesting. I, I pointed to it in my Isaiah debate because that's kind of like a parallel concept that's going on in Isaiah. That God tells us what he's going to do before God does it such that we know that God's the one who does it. And, and just, just think about the idiomatic use of words even in that verse. So that doesn't mean that uh, before God decided to create the world that he told a bunch of people about creating the world before he created the world or anything like that. That's just like hyperbole. It's, it's just pointing to a general principle. And the general principle is that God wants people to understand which acts are his and which acts are not. And so he tells us beforehand so that we could differentiate the two. And so it's not like God doing everything or anything like that. Um, there, they don't seem to understand what's going on in that context. It's, it, I, I don't think they've internalized how this, I don't know if these guys are Calvinists. I don't, I don't know if they've internalized how that affects their theology. So all the prophets and the knowledge of the prophets come from the mind of God. So, I mean, I, I'm frustrated in, this, in the sense that we have to get up here and even talk about whether or not God doesn't know the future about things. I, I'm sure they got like one audience member or something that were, was asking them questions about it. And then they got real riled up and they're like, we got to make a video. And now their whole video is like, I can't believe I have to do this. And, and the one the one audience member who actually cares and asked them about it is like, uh, I guess, I guess I, I, I'm, I'm going to almost guarantee that's that's what happened. They got like one person asking questions in in their fan base in their in their group that regularly watches their videos, and so now they're making a big deal of it because because I the signaling that they're doing is um, this is so beneath us and so absurd that the fact that we're making a video about this is is beneath us. Open theism is so below us; it's beneath us. Therefore, you should see what we're saying, internalize it, and then you too should see open theism is that far below us. 
It's absolutely frustrating. God is not a man, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should repent. God is not a man. He doesn't think like a man. He doesn't act like a man. Okay? Just because we're made in the image of God, and God breathed into our nostrils the breath of life, it doesn't mean that God is limited to the same brain that we have. So people don't need to understand three major, three major things that people need to understand about the attributes of God. I think they're having guests over. I think that's what the background noise was. But um, yeah, God doesn't think like us or behave like us. And sometimes the context of those statements are things like God's going to forgive where men would not forgive. God, God has compassion. I, I got a kid running around upstairs. I got to figure that out. I'll just hit play. There's a God is, there's 26 attributes of God. And one of these days we're going to go through all of them. But these are the main attributes that, that completely refute open theism. Yep. And if you're a proponent of this and somebody's been teaching you open theism, you need to reject it. You need to get back to the Bible. You need to get back to the attributes of God. And you need to study the word. Don't go off what this guy says, what... You know, some scholar said 300 years ago, go back to the Bible. What does it say? God is omniscient, meaning he has all knowledge, okay? He has limitless foreknowledge. This is knowledge about the future. God has limitless knowledge about the future. One of the attributes of God. God trans. And so this is one of the words when James White was criticizing Warren McGrew on the video today. That was recorded like a year ago or something like that. Um, he's like, oh, God had foreordained this plan in Acts 2 about Pilate. And the he's, he's very intent on that word meaning exactly what in his mind that theology would indicate. Rather than letting variations in how words translate or behave within the human language. Yeah, God had a plan at that time. That was his foreordained plan. Is a plan that he ordained previously, and so James White will assume that that plan must have been from the beginning of all creation, or even before that, or timeless, because God can't innovate new plans, and so it has to be part of this eternal decree. And that's what this foreordained plan means. But you know, a lot of times when you look at this type of language, it, it doesn't work like that. Within the same passage, it's talking about. Uh, foretelling. Now, foretelling, it sounds to us like when you foretell something, you're telling something about the future. And yeah, that, that is how the word is used in the Bible. But but using that prefix, and then it tells you what it's talking about, it could just as easily been, they told us before about these things in the future. And so you have one passage in which someone goes ahead of Paul uh, to make make a place for him. And they, they foretell those people to prepare for Paul's arrival. Right? They're, they're telling them in the past something that's going to happen in the future. And so it's not like the word itself is uh, embedded with all these notions of divine pronostication or anything like that. So we, we got to be careful not to import theology that's not necessary in the word. And look how the word's used elsewhere. And uh, our our friend here is not. He he sees a word for knowledge, for ordained, and uh, definitely it must mean his theology.
sins or goes beyond the limits of David writes omniscience is suddenly in the Bible yeah it, it's I don't even think it's in the Vulgate Bible I don't believe it's in the the Latin Vulgate I think omnipotence is in the Vulgate it uses that word but I don't think omniscience is our universal nature it means God is not inside the universe God transcends the universe God's able to go through it, out of it, he's above it, he's not affected by it. Meaning he's not affected by time. Now we know from Einstein, brother, mm -hmm. that time is part of the fabric of space. Now they're appealing to Einstein. Uh, so I don't know if everyone remembers the video we pulled up of the physicist saying we, we fundamentally, fundamentally don't understand reality around us. We can build models of, of how we think that the universe works, and then we can predict things based on these models, but there's nothing that ties those models to any any sort of fundamental truth of the universe that we, we just don't have access to. And so these, these weird claims that Einstein said something somewhere that somehow contradicts open theism, and that's to be taken as gospel truth in whatever way they understand it, those those are kind of frivolous claims. I, I don't even think physicists would make those same claims that they're doing, even if those physicists are buying all the theological beliefs that these guys have. So I think a physicist would be a little bit more careful in what they're doing. But these guys see a talking point. They're going to incorporate this talking point. Listen, we got the Bible. There's some science we're throwing in. The science means our stuff as well. And listen to me talk about how God is so so far above uh, linear space. It's like, is linear space, is, is that a thing? Or is that, uh, I don't know, friend. Right. And, and, and it's not that Einstein created this. It was just that it's always been there. And he discovered it. Yeah, God allowed him to figure it out. But he, he, he discovered that, that time is affected by the fabric of space. And that time is a creation. It's not something that is above space that just monitors or measures it. It's a part of it. Amen. Meaning time is a creation of God. Meaning God is not affected by time. Right. He's not affected by it. He transcends it. And so they reject these major characteristics about the nature of God. The transcendence, the foreknowledge, and the omniscience of God. And if you reject these, you're obviously going to fall into error. You're obviously going to fall into error. I just wanna, and that's what we're refuting right now. I just want to um, say something really quick. Okay. Um, a lot of people, and you know, I'm not going to say a lot of people, but what I've seen and what I've heard so far from people who do. So we, we do got a couple questions that that's in the chat. Uh, one guy, Christian Observer, says, I bought your book recently. Excellent. I was reading it the other day to my kids, and I love it. It's like, if I didn't write this book, I'd still buy it. It's so good. So uh, read the Exodus chapters particularly. Um, Travis says, I have a question, and then he didn't ask the question. All right. Um, then there's a PMA master says, what's the name of the physicist? I'm, I'm going to try to find that video and pull it up. But we'll hit play again on these guys. Who believe in open theism doesn't just stop here. They also tend to uh, reject original sin. So this is not just um, one doctrine that they just 
latch onto and then tries to, you know, move it forward after that. No, they, they end up rejecting a whole lot of other things. So just like how Brother Matthew said, it's a basket of doctrine. Exactly. Exactly. If if you're if you're being taught this doctrine, just understand that whoever is teaching you this or wherever you're listening where uh, uh, where this is being taught something else is also being taught that you probably haven't understood yet or probably haven't heard yet but be aware that um the times that we're living in it should be no surprise that the so this is not a new talking point that they're giving remember we talked already about how they seem to be just rehashing various talking points that they've heard in various other open theist videos this is one of those talking points that there might be this cascading thing. If, if you buy open theism, then you'll start believing this or you'll start believing this. A pastor who's kicking me out of church, uh, he's like, uh, open theism leads to atheism. It's like, well, if if that's where the truth takes me, I was like, so be it. It's like, like you don't you don't just like cater your beliefs because you're very wary of where where the truth will take you or something like it's it's a weird mentality. Can you imagine if you actually uh, followed through on this and it led you to this belief and then you started believing that? Wouldn't that be awful? Like, I, that, that's, that's, mm, that's, a, that's a weird argument. The, the attributes of God, the doctrines of the Bible, salvation issues are going to be under attack. And so we need to be aware. So I'm really glad that we're doing this teaching. So ahead, mainly where we brought out the major scriptures here, like I said, we could fill this entire wall with scriptures about how that God knows the future. Okay, and that God knows what people are going to do. But we brought out the major ones here. We're going to look at a few categories. We're going to look here about the prophecies that Jesus Christ individually gave. We're going to look at some about Abraham. I actually want to go to this one next. We're going to look at uh, the Psalms. We're going to look at Hebrews. We're going to look at that one out of Jeremiah that they love to use. Jeremiah 32... 25, where it talks about the idols and the, and the sacrifices. So, I want to start over here with Abraham. Because this is the one that a lot of people love to latch onto. This one right here. Abraham's about to offer up Isaac. He's about to bring the knife down. And what happens? The angel stops him. He says, don't do it. Don't lay your hand upon the son. Why? Because now I know that you will not withhold your only son. Let me read that scripture, brother. Read that. So this is Genesis chapter tw uh, 22, verse 11 to 14. Yes. It says, And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here I am. And he said, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know, there's the, there's the key yes. thing, I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of, it, in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the... So this is a very interesting passage. I, I don't use it very often because people could like uh, argue little Weasley ways around it or whatever. But it, it is interesting that this passage has converted scholars to open theism. I quote... Uh, Joel S. Kaminsky, from his Jews, Christians, and the Theology of the Hebrew Scriptures, in which he talks about reading Genesis 22 in a new light. He says this, So what might we learn about God from this story? I remember the moment 
when that dimension of the text opened up for me. My homiletics uh, colleague, Richard Ward, and I were doing a teaching session together. He recited Genesis 22 from memory. In the freshness of that new medium, I heard a verse I had always passed over before, although I do not recall his giving it any special emphasis. Again, the angel of the Lord is speaking. Do not stretch out your hand to the lad and do not a single thing to him. For now I know that you are a God-fearer and that you did not withhold your son, your only one, from me. If we take those words seriously, and in this narrative not a word is wasted, then we have to believe that there is something God now knows for the first time. For all, for all its theocentricity, the book of Genesis gives little comfort to the doctrine of the divine omniscience. What God knows now is so crucial that this most terrible test was devised in order to show whether, in fact, Abraham cares for God above everything and everyone else, even above Isaac, his son, and his own slender hope for fulfillment of God's promise. I spoke earlier of cultivating generosity towards the text. If we are indeed to befriend it, generosity towards the Old Testament must mean this, at least, accepting the text on its own terms, literally, working seriously with the language that it offers us. The advantage of this present reading is that it is directed by the words of the passage rather than by an extraneous extraneous idea, the, immoral, the immorality of child sacrifice, the omniscience of God, however valid that that idea might be in another interpretive situation. So he's basically, uh, here's what he makes this point as well that I, I do in my book. This reading also coheres with the larger narrative context to which the very first words of the chapter points us. After these things, God tested Abraham. After what things? What, what, where are we in the history of salvation? At this point, all God's eggs are in Abraham's basket. Almost literally, recall that after the Tower of Babel, God gave up on working on a blessing directly upon all of humankind and adopted a new strategy, channeling the blessing through Abraham's line. Genesis 12, 3. Our story takes account of that new divine strategy. I'm not going to read the rest, but you could go find that on the God is Open webpage. It's called Critical Scholar Finds Open Theism in Genesis 22. And so it's like these, these theologians, when they're reading this verse, it, it opens their eyes and they're able to, to see open theism where it didn't belong before because of their theological priors. But uh, they're going to tell us why we should not read it like that scholar. In the name of the place Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. So, but the key verse that we're looking at is verse 12, where it says, I know. But now I know. And we look at the Hebrew word, that Hebrew word is yadai. Now, or yada is pronounced, you know, in, in how we pronounce it. But if you look at that same Hebrew word, it's literally the same Hebrew word that is used for Adam knowing Eve as wife. Okay, so this is a, a not a, this is not just about knowledge of something factual. It's not about factual things. It's not that God had to find out a fact about Abraham. It was that this is about relationship and acquaintance. Yeah, so um, um, <laughs> I don't think the word is being used in the same way that... Uh, Adam knew his wife. I, I'm just going out on a limb here. That, that that knowing was probably different than what God is doing in this. There's for sexual intercourse, there are a lot of euphemisms 
in a lot of different language, even in Hebrew, to, to talk about sensitive subjects without using direct language. And so I definitely, I definitely think uh, the, the first reference, uh, Adam knowing his wife, is um, about copulation. I, I don't I don't think that's what's going on in Genesis 22. I, I just so I, I don't think there are yes, there's a lot of different meanings to the word no and it could be used with familiarity, but that, that's a contextual argument that you're gonna have to make rather than it's used this once one way over here, therefore it's used the same way over here. Words have various meanings. And so you're gonna have to show that it's like now I'm familiar with this. Is it is God gaining experiences? Because that sounds like open theism. It's about being acquainted with Abraham in the sacrificing of his son. Amen. You're being acquainted with it. Why did God allow Abraham to even put his son on the altar? Because he was fulfilling a type. It was all about typology. Okay? God had Israel do many type things in his set up pillars in certain places, the Gilgal, the circle of stones, many things that God had them do as a typology, Amen. okay, to, uh, as a memorial. And we know that Mount Moriah was where Christ was crucified some 2,500 years later, 2,200 years later. And so... Um, this is not that God... So I found the video that I was referencing. It's called, Do We Know What the Universe is Made Of? We'll go listen to it pretty quickly. This guy will just kind of explain, we just fundamentally don't know the basic One facts the about this universe. One of the things that struck me in all the work that I've done over the last um, 25 years, thinking about uh, what modern physics is trying to tell us, is, is really having come to the realization uh, that even though the great revolutions in 20th century physics fundamentally change the way that we try to understand space and time and matter and energy, um, the, the simple truth is that we actually still don't. I've become more and more aware uh, that uh, even though there has been tremendous scientific progress, scientists are still asking themselves the same questions that philosophers were challenging themselves with four or five hundred years ago. Now, that doesn't mean to say we don't make progress, but we make progress in the sense that we find ways of dealing with the ideas without ever really understanding them. The truth of the matter is that ever since the time of the ancient Greeks, about two and a half thousand years ago, uh, we've understood that matter or material substance um, can be divided or broken down into um, a series of tiny, indestructible, indivisible bits of stuff that we call atoms. And that's a notion that's really quite difficult to shake. Um, we, we feel we know what matter is. We feel we know what mass is. Uh, the Greeks actually gave their atoms the property of weight. So, so we understand it. We live with it. Um, it's part of our daily lives, our daily routine. Um, but there is a sense in which modern physics has really pulled the rug from under our feet with regard to our understanding of the nature of mass in particular. The truth is, and the shocking truth is, that we've never really understood mass since the days of Isaac Newton and uh, his famous tome, The Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, from 1687. 
it's a simple truth that the more we appear to have learned, certainly in the last century, the less we really understand. Yeah, so it's really hard to, to make fundamental claims about the building blocks of the universe that like, I remember in high school, there was this uh, physics teacher and he's like, oh, the Greeks uh, thought that atoms were the smallest things in the world and you couldn't divide anything smaller than atoms, but they were wrong. You can actually divide atoms. You could split off protons and electrons. It's like, what the, uh, I, I, it, maybe he was being funny, but he his his demeanor seemed like he was trying to make a serious statement and it's just just a complete category or they, they weren't talking about the same atoms as us. And it could be, in fact, maybe when they're talking about the four different elements that make up the universe, that th those four elements are the basic elements of the universe. And there, there's, there's even lower levels than what we've discovered and came up with, with our models that that's, that still will validate their, their speculation. I, I don't, I don't believe that's going to be the case or anything like that but it can't be just dismissed offhand. And so we just fundamentally don't have access to what makes up reality. And so when people pretend like they have all the answers and then, then they apply it to theology, it's like, oh, we, we know what space is. We, we know what time is. And it's like this, uh, this matter that uh, is, is able to be calculated and, and uh, manipulated or something. And God has to be above this. It's, I, th I think it's category error. It's people um, having a lot more, what, self-importance, uh, having a lot more, um, that th they, th they think they know more than they actually do. A little bit of hubris w when it comes to the scientific pursuit. And uh, my brother and I did a video where we, we talk about these, these problems and we talk about um, I, am, uh, I Am Strange Loop. There, there's a book about how we know things and how our knowledge is all inherently self-referential. And we talk about certain concepts that that book uh, exposes us to, it talks about, and it uh, makes us aware of. And one of the key takeaways from that book is that we operate on a practical level. And so even though we don't understand the lower levels of existence or reality, it doesn't matter because the practical level, if it's predictable in our, from what we can make of uh, the practical applications, then our lives work out. We don't have to understand the minutiae. We don't have to understand the basic building blocks of reality in order for us to know, hey, if I'm going to, I'm going to uh, pull this thing on this, this cord on this lawnmower, that's going to start. But only if I press this little primer button 10 times to, to put some fuel in the engine, I don't have to know what all the electrons are doing inside that mower. That mower is still going to generally work, even, even with randomness, even with the chaoticness within in the engine stroke motor, it's, it's going to work the same because everything's working in predictable patterns. And so um, I, would, I would like to point that out, that that video is fairly good and it's good to point to. And I don't think you're going to find a physicist that if you showed them that video, they'll say, oh, this guy's all wrong. This guy's a baseless. He's just making this all up. We understand it all. They're going to understand that there's there's certain levels of existence that we just don't have access to. We, we're, we're getting more data as time goes on, but it's not like, it's not like something that we've mastered. And it's, it's not good to pretend that we have. You 
as a typology, Amen. okay, to uh, as a memorial. And we know that Mount Moriah was where Christ was crucified some 2,500 years later, or 2,200 years later. And so um, this is not that God found out something factual about Abraham he didn't know. Right. Because we're going to look at all the other different places where God did have all the facts pre in advance. Knew exactly what they were going to So Travis's question, I don't know if this was his actual question all, all the way up when he said he has a question. But he's asking about Jeremiah 19.5 in which God says that it never came into his mind to command Israel to sacrifice their children to him or to Moloch, the, the MLK, Moloch sacrifice. And so um, they... They being Calvinist, I don't, I don't know if these guys are Calvinists, but the Calvinist response and the Arminian response are typically going to be the same thing that this is about never entering God's mind to command it. So it's like uh, if your your kids, um, let's say they decide to paint your room without your authorization, and they think you're going to be happy about this. It's it's not that I never conceived in my life that they'd ever go paint my room, but it might. It might, I might be able to say to them, I never even thought to command you guys to do this. I never s thought that it's a good idea to tell you guys to go paint my room. That's a terrible idea. I would have never commanded that. So although you think you're doing me a favor, it's really not. It's not something I wanted. Yeah, so that's, that's what's going on in those Jeremiah verses is God is exasperated. And yeah, he, he never thought these guys were going to actually execute their children like this. And it's, it's very horrendous. But the passage in question is about him declaring that he didn't even think that to command them to do this sacrifice, which they thought this was a Yahweh child sacrifice cult. They thought they were honoring Yahweh in the, these child sacrifices. And so the Calvinists and Arminians are not wrong on that, except for the Calvinists need to deny the very basic principle that God commands and ordains all things. Because this verse says, didn't even enter God's mind to command it. And so the Calvinists then uh, retreat into this, oh, it's his declared will versus his secret will, something like that, because they have uh, internal contradiction in their theology with it, and they need to explain away why God says it didn't enter his mind to command something, which they believe that he obviously commanded. Going to do exactly. God didn't discover something about Abraham. God was allowing Abraham to be in that acquaintance with him in the sacrifice. It was about fulfilling the typology, and it was about setting up a memorial. It said in the Hudson writes, uh, "Do open theists believe the Calum causological argument that William Lane Craig believes? It's it's hit or miss whether or not open theists endorse that." Out of the Lord it shall be seen. It was a prophecy that God was giving. Okay, so Abraham was fulfilling a prophetic work. It was a prophetic work about something that was coming future. And so don't use this verse to try to tell me that God didn't know what Abraham was going to do. It's not scriptural, and that's not what it means. Okay, God did know exactly what was going to happen. It's not scriptural. Okay, what was their argument? Uh, does, is, is, did anyone catch their argument? Their argument is that this is prophetic, and so it doesn't mean that God's learning about this. Let's, let's rewind just a little bit. Maybe they got this nuanced position that hasn't been 
declared by anyone before. I, I again, I don't think so. I think this is just their popular, their rehash of uh, popular videos on open theism. Of the Lord, it shall be seen. It was a prophecy that God was giving. Okay, so Abraham was fulfilling a prophetic work. It was a prophetic work about something that was coming future. And so. Don't use this verse to try to tell me that God didn't know what Abraham was going to do. Okay, we're going to try again. It's not memorial. And we know that Mount Moriah was where Christ was crucified some 2,500 years later, 2,200 years later. And so um, this is not that God found out something factual about Abraham he didn't know. Right. Because we're going to look at all the other different places where God did have all the facts in advance knew exactly that's they say that this doesn't mean that god found out about something because we got other verses elsewhere they, their, their argument seems to be because this was a shadow of christ and I, I i don't dispute that whatsoever bob anyer had a video that he put out called mount moriah the the mountain of god in which mount sinai and i think i think he equates mount sinai and mount moriah as the same video within that and then he ties that throughout the history of the Bible as, and then places that where Christ is dying in the New Testament, something like that. So his claim was like, is all on the same, I, maybe I'm getting that wrong, but it's kind of the same idea that this is a shadow of Christ, but, and therefore we shouldn't take the language literally or seriously. I, I don't, I don't think that's a good argument. Exactly what they were going to do. Exactly. God didn't discover something about Abraham. God was allowing Abraham to be in that acquaintance with him in the sacrifice. It was about fulfilling the typology, and it was about setting up a memorial. It said, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. It was a prophecy that God was given. Okay, so, so our scholar, when he's reminiscing on this language that's being used in Genesis 22, the scholar that we read, he, he points out that words aren't wasted in this account. Words aren't wasted in this narrative. Um, it, it's, it's describing something to someone uh, of some effect. And they're saying, just forget all the words. Look at the overall concept. The overall concept is what matters. The details are not important. Um, look elsewhere to get a better, more accurate picture of God. I don't think that's a good argument. So Abraham was fulfilling a prophetic work. It was a prophetic work about something that was coming future. And so don't use this verse to try to tell me that God didn't know what Abraham was going to do. It's not. It's a one use verse. We could only use it for this one thing, this shadow thing. We can't use it for anything else. There's only one purpose, and to get a second purpose, you can't do that. You just got to throw any of those other side. My one purpose is the real purpose, and anything that you come up with a purpose is not the real purpose, and there is only one purpose, and it's my purpose. That's, that, that, that is basically the argument. It's scriptural, and that's not what it means, Okay. God did know exactly what was going to happen. And if you look at Genesis 4, verse 9, there's another use of the word yadai. And it was when God asked Cain, where is Abel your brother? Now, we already know God knew where Abel was. Why? Because in the same passage, he says later, 
the voice of your brother's blood cries to me from what? The ground. God knew what Cain had done. For one, God's not blind. Exactly. So he saw it happening in real time. So it wasn't that God was trying to get Cain to tell him where Abel was because now Abel's lost and I can't find him. Right. You really think that's what that means? <laughs> No, he was allowing Cain the opportunity, brothers and sisters. Now, this might be controversial, but he was allowing Cain the opportunity to confess his sin. Oh, it's it's a known answer question. Uh, it could be a known answer question. So we, that's one of the possibilities. But the purpose of known answer questions is to acquire information. I say to my my kids, "Have you cleaned your room today?" I might know without even looking, I might know that the answer is going to be no, but I might be testing them to see what they're going to say to me. And so known answer questions is a way to acquire information, not about what you're asking about, but acquiring information about the person you're talking to. I think this is key when people point to things like uh, Genesis 3 and they're like, oh, God is saying this so that they could uh, confess here. So uh, this is an interesting take, though, that this is just like a thing to get the guy to confess. You know, it's like, just confess. Well, does God know the guy's going to confess? What's the purpose of confessing if if God knows all things in the future? And is is, is that a meaningful act by God? Um, there's there's a lot of ex additional questions, but known answer questions are a thing and uh, are compatible and and necessitate open theism. If God's trying to find out about people, that's open theism. I believe, I believe, and I can use the Bible to support this, that if Cain had looked up to God and said, God, the reason why you can't find Abel is because I killed him. And he had brought the sacrifice and laid the sacrifice out and said, God, here's a blood sacrifice. I'm sorry, I, I, I've sinned. I killed Abel, my brother. Will you please have mercy upon me? I believe he would have. I believe God would have had mercy on Cain. I believe God would have had mercy on Cain because God's not a respecter of persons. And in every nation, he that fears God and works righteousness is accepted with him. God taught Adam and Eve how to sacrifice. Even after they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He taught them the sacrificial system because that was how the atonement was to be made and it was how they were reconciled to God. And so... If Cain had confessed, and God was giving him that opportunity in that statement to confess, I believe, then we would have had a different story. Maybe we wouldn't have had Seth. I don't know. I don't. You know, I don't predetermine. You know, the mind of God. God has. It, it, I don't know how it would have turned out. Maybe we would have still had Seth. But the whole thing is, is that God knew where Abel was. Is the point I'm making? Amen. God knew exactly where he was. He knew he was dead. And he knew that Cain killed him. And so we can't use these scriptures where God's asking a question, you know, to say, well, God has, doesn't have the facts about something. Okay, so let's actually look at their factual claim. I, I don't know if he's confusing concepts. He says this the same word for I know is used by God in reference to Cain and Abel. But I think what he's what actually is happening is that the same word where God says, uh, where are you, Adam? That's also used with Cain and Abel. 
the word no from Genesis 22 is used in that passage. I just pulled it up. Um, and, but, but here's the context. The Lord said unto Cain, where is Abel, thy brother? And Abel says, I know not. And so that's where the word from Genesis 22 is used in Genesis 4, 9. And it's about factual knowledge of something. If, if you're acquainted with the propositional truth values of something. It's not the same no that's used uh, when uh, Adam knows his wife. It, it's not the, the same sense of the word. It's, it's not copulation. It, I don't copulate God. I don't think that's what Abel or what Cain is saying about Abel. But I, I think he's got his wires crossed. I, I might have to re-listen to it. But I, I, I think what he did was he confused talking points. His actual talking point was in Genesis 3 where God says, that uh, where are you, that's the same word used for the Abel example. And because he knows where Abel is and he's asking that, then he's not trying to acquire information with the question in Genesis 4, like, like Genesis 3. But instead, he start, started talking about Genesis 22 using the same word for no. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to re-listen to it. But I, I think... I think he he mixed up his talking points. It's just not biblical. It's not biblical. Look at the life of Christ, brother. Look at the life of Christ. We have the uh, he predicted that where the the upper room was going to be. He predicted that the, the, the they were going to unloose the ass from the mat. Did did they did they construct the room right afterwards? Like uh, did he predict the room and then they built the room, or is that like something? Master and, and lead it away. Yep. And the, the guy was going to say, what are you doing with it? Where are you taking the colt? <laughs> he, he talked, I mean, just, in, you know, he talked about Peter's denial, right, brother? Exactly. I mean, even in. Okay, here's here's Peter, Peter's denial. And uh, someone pointed out to me, I might not have any articles talking specifically about Peter's denial. And so one, one thought process we need to go through with all these examples they're using that uh uh, there's they're untying the donkey or the horse or the colt or both a donkey and a colt depending on which which version with which gospel you're reading it's like we, we need to walk through the thought process what would happen what would be recorded in the bible what would be our takeaways what would be the excuses given what would be these guys's position if that thing didn't come to pass and let's let's so let's take uh Peter denying uh, God three times. Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. He says, no, Lord, I'm not going to. And then he's tested. Let's pretend that he he stayed true to Jesus. Uh, he kept his affiliation. He, uh, he proclaimed Jesus's name loudly. Nobody was going to say that's a failed prophecy. Everyone's going to be like, oh, that was a warning to him. Let's just say the story stayed in the Bible, except for Peter accepted uh, his position with Jesus, they'll say this was a warning to him. It was conditional. And even though Jesus said it was going to happen that he had denied three times, it, it, that was that warned him and swayed him away from this path. And he was able to overcome that using it as a warning. This is exactly what they do with the Nineveh situation. This, this is how they mentally justify God saying 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And then that thing not happening. There's, they say, oh, there's, there's uh, implicit not explicit because it's definitely not explicit in the text. There's the implicit conditional 
and it's meant to sway their future actions. And so all, all the time, people are going to run through run through a mitigation. I will say they're they're going to run through mitigation techniques to salvage prophecies. Let's take the tire example and how they try to salvage the tire example. God tells Nebuchadnezzar, "You're going to take this city. You're going to get your spoils." What really happens is he invades the mainland. He doesn't get to the actual island city. He doesn't get his wages and all his men go bald. And then God gives him Exodus as a consolation prize. And to salvage this prophecy, they they look at the prophecy. They split the prophecy into two parts. They're like, oh, the first part here, that applies to King Nebuchadnezzar. But then this part over here applies to other countries. Alexander the Great, 200 years later, if that's what this is talking about. I don't think so. <clears throat> They'll point to the, the specific wording. Oh, nations will come against you. Oh, yeah, but the Bible also says Nebuchadnezzar is a king of nations because that's how things work. You had vassal states, and you had mercenary armies, and you had uh, uh, conscripts from the various places. And so when someone's attacking you, it's a bunch of nations. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of nations. And so that's what it's talking about. But they focus on the word and they say, oh, nations means Nebuchadnezzar is one wave. And then Alexander is the next wave. And so this, this prophecy was fulfilled in Alexander the Great uh, taking over the city of Tyre. So they'll go through great lengths to salvage this prophecy. I, th I think they would do that about the cult and the donkey too. If, if that didn't occur and if that was still recorded, or even if it wasn't recorded, that's, that's also another thing they do. They'll point to things that don't have actual fulfillment recorded in the Bible, and they'll claim that as evidence towards their position. Oh, God said this one thing's going to happen. Well, did it happen? And there's not going to be any record. They'll, they'll just only assume it did, and therefore our position's right. It's like, I, I, I don't think that's legitimate. And if you guys go to uh, uh, Luke chapter 22 uh, and read from verse 31 to 62, Jesus literally tells Peter, you're going to deny me. If, if God doesn't know the future, if he doesn't know about what things are going to happen in the future, how, how is it possible? Here's another thing that we'd like to point out about this, this Peter denial instance is that Jesus admits to not knowing everything. It's like uh, Mark 13, 32. No one knows the time or the hour, not even the son, only the father in heaven knows the, the coming day of the apocalypse, right? And so we're not even dealing with Jesus being omniscient. And so they, they build weird categories. They're like, Jesus set aside his omniscience to become a man. And then like uh, he gets to activate it, I guess, to talk to uh, uh, Peter about his denials. It's like, it's a switch. It gets to come on and off. And if Jesus predicts something right, that's proof of omniscience. Okay, I, okay. But he also doesn't have omniscience because of that verse over there that that's irrefutable or anything like that. And uh, and so it, it's like a cherry picking their arguments and applying them uh, depending on what best value they get at, at a single time. Was Jesus omniscient or not? If he's not omniscient, this is not a proof of omniscience unless you're going to make it a weird argument that God is proving God's omniscience by giving this information to Jesus to pass on to Peter to like, it's like a step-by-step -step proof of omniscience, but it's not a Jesus omniscience claim, whatever it is, right?
and uh, they they can't figure out what else this could be. Yeah, remember also Satan. Satan, you know, in the Bible, Satan does things like opposes God. Why would Satan oppose God? The answer I get from like Calvinists is like he's just he's just a very stupid person. He's just really dumb. He has not a chance at winning. Um, if he's making bets with God in in the Book of Job, it, it's it's not that he's he's just really dumb making bets with a deity that knows all future things. Uh, you're just a dumb person for making bets about future predictions against an omniscient being, and that's that's what they resort to. They're like, oh, he's Satan. He's just a very very dumb dumb person. Okay, well, Satan was uh, at wanting to sift Peter and test him. So that might be another way that Jesus knew this setup was coming, that these there's a lot of uh, different events going on that point to these events coming true. It's not like if these events didn't come to their conclusion in that, that exact way that we just throw the Bible out, that we throw it out. The Bible's junk. These prophecies didn't come true. Nothing like that. They would find salvaging methods for those verses and just move on like they do throughout the Bible with other times that God says something and that thing doesn't happen. My latest example was uh, within Exodus 3 where God said, well, first of all, God said, hey, Moses, you're going to be my mouth. Did not happen. Aaron was the mouth. The next thing he said was, uh, all the elders are going to come with you to Pharaoh and argue your case and they're all going to believe your sides. Uh, it didn't happen. Israel was just, they were rebellious towards Moses. They didn't want to follow God. Um, they they were always unsure of God. They, they, they weren't on board with the whole liberation from Egypt. And throughout, throughout Exodus, just read all of Exodus and see, not even Moses is on board, really. Moses is always a roadblock to God. He doesn't want to do the things that God wants him to do. So everyone's a roadblock to God. God has to just kind of force through all these people who don't want to cooperate. It's an interesting case study of how God gets things done. The thing about this passage that's important about Peter, Peter is a very good one. Because Greg says, uh, missed the beginning. Who are these young men? We don't know. I think they're street preachers. He's got a street preacher thing on. And their channel says Grace Team Seattle. So I assume they live in Seattle. They're just random YouTube guys. God, knowing the future on that, had to be determined upon man's decision because it, it involved a man's choice. It, okay, so Peter would have had to have chosen to deny God, okay, for God to get that right, and yet he still got it right. Yeah. God still was so notice the category also of knowledge that they're using. They say God knows this, and what is knowledge in this system? It's it's not justified true belief. That that's what we commonly understand as as knowledge. Their idea of God's knowledge is that God's knowledge independently correlates on a one to one basis with propositions that exist out in the ether. It's like God has this ungenerated, unfalsifiable, uh, non discursive, eternal, and exhaustive knowledge of all things, and the world lines up with that. That's not that's not how we use the word knowledge. And so it's it's kind of a bait and switch. We're familiar with knowledge. You can know things about the future. You can know that the Democrats are going to get absolutely trounced in the next election. It doesn't you, you don't have to be like a scholar of history. You don't have to be a physicist or a or a, a political scientist with, with the highest degrees in order to know these things. You can know things about the future and we will say, yeah, we know I know the Democrats will get trounced 
in the next election. And you can say that, and no one's going to dispute it. Maybe, maybe, maybe as someone who, who doesn't agree with you, they might try to say, oh, that's wrong. They're not going to get trounced. I know, I know the Republicans are going to get trounced in the next election. It's like, but they'll, they'll, they'll make the same type of knowledge claims. But that's how we use the word knowledge. They're using a special theologically derived usage of the word knowledge and saying, since God said this, he knew this. And what that knowledge means is that it lines up on a one-on-one basis with truth propositions that exist. It's just not how the knowledge is used. It's a bait and switch. And they don't even realize what they're doing. It's, it's that once you get into theology and start talking theology, you kind of create this uh, bubble world system that you start operating in, uh, divorced from the real world. It, it's, it's like practicality goes out the window, which, which is really sad because as I point out, the Bible is a book about practicality. How do we live our lives? Who is God? How do you have a relationship with God? How do you perform right religion? How do you, how do you live your life? It's a practical manual. It's not a metaphysics manual. It's not a systematic theology. It doesn't dive into the metaphysics of, of the God substance. Instead, it's about the character of God. It's about who we should be as people. I was able to predict it even though it was based upon a human decision. It was still based on a human decision, yet still God was able to predict in detail what was going to happen. Brothers and sisters, you've got to get out of this mentality that God is somehow limited to a human mind, or that God is somehow like us. in this universe, or that God is like a man. It says in Psalm 50, is that you thought I was such, as, such an altogether, such as one as thyself, he said. So that, read that. Yeah, I'm so gonna, I'm you gonna thought read I was like you. That's God, God's saying in Psalm 50, he said, you thought I was just like you. I'm not. Uh, the, the ultimate irony is in Hebrews, it talks about uh, Jesus becoming like man in all respects, right? And so they're... Their their big thing is, oh, God is not man. And it, we need to drive this huge wedge in here. Whereas the Bible, yeah, Old Testament has a lot of division, but there, there's a lot of unity as well. So God makes us in his image. And it'd be funny for these guys to do a case study on the word image, that God made us in his image, and do, do a case study on how that's used throughout the Old Testament. Um, at, <laughs> I, I don't I don't suspect they have done it. I don't suspect they would like the results of of how image is used throughout the Bible and in relation to we're being made in God's image. But also just just keep in mind that the entire point of Hebrews is that God is condescending and becoming like man in in all respects, right? It's 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 this it's bridging this divide. And John says, uh, hey, how, we we want to see the Father. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I asked a Calvinist once, it might just have been just because it's that random Calvinist, and I said, how is seeing Jesus like seeing God, given that you have all these weird attributes, uh, immutability, eternality, uh, simplicity, uh, omniscience, impassibility, these things. How is seeing, how can you see God through seeing Jesus? He said, I don't know. So it might, might have just been that particular Calvinist I'm asking, but really their theology doesn't have an answer for it. God is in no way, in no respect, like a human being. You can't actually see God by seeing Jesus. I don't think that's the biblical message.
Okay? If there was a cattle and, I, and if I'm hungry, I don't ask you because I don't, I don't need you. I have all the cattle on a thousand hills. And it's about man, God's sufficiency outside of man. It's in verse 21 of Psalm 50. Yeah. It says, These things thou hast done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such as one as thyself. Yeah. But I will reprove thee and set them in order for the night. He's declaring that I'm not like you. I'm not like you. My ways are higher than your ways. In fact, that's another scripture. Isaiah right? <laughs> 55. Yeah, so Bob Inert makes the case that, yeah, God's ways are higher than ours. It does, it's, he's not lower than our ways, right? The context of that verse in particular is God's not evil like, like a man, right? I think we'll, we, we should actually just pull that up and read the context. We'll let them talk a little bit more. He said, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So get out of this mentality that God is somehow going through time with us. That was Isaiah 55.9. Yep. Get out of this mentality that God is somehow experiencing, you know, like things us. with us right now. Like we're all going into this. We're in together, God. We're all just going in it. All right. So here's the context. You just turn to the context. Any Calvinist proof text. Um, they say that this proof text means that uh, God has omniscience or, or God is outside of time and space. God's thinking is categorically different than ours. He doesn't have discursive thoughts, probably, if you press these guys. I don't think they'd know what discursive meant. But uh, that, that's that's what they're claiming about this verse. And so we could do our little trick that we talked about last time. Take their explanation of that verse. Let, let's, let's, uh, that, let's freeze that. Let's categorize that. Let's, let's, let's build a slot in our memory. And then we'll insert it into the context to see if it makes any sense whatsoever. It says, God says, incline your ear, come near to me here, that your soul may live, and that I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run, shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Because I'm outside of time and in no way like a man and can't change and don't have discursive thoughts. No, no. Uh, I don't know our guys' names. Uh, brothers, uh, guys, guy in the t-shirt, no, no, that, it doesn't make any sense. Okay, so what, what's going on in context is God is calling for people to return to him. And what's God's constant refrain? Return to me, and then I will return to you. And so in context, it's not about like God being categorically different than us. In what way is he not like us? In what way is his thoughts not like us? It's that he'll forgive. He'll let us come back to the fold. It won't be like, like if my wife like cheated on me, I, she's out. I'm going to kick her out of the house. She's gone. Um, I'm just done with that. Burning that bridge. No reconciliation. That's what I'd do. God's not like that. God's not a man. Uh, he will give forgiveness. He'll give uh, repentance. He will he will call people back into the fold. He will have mercy where men do not have mercy. That's the context. It's not it's not like 
I'm categorically different than a person in this weird metaphysical. What? I I don't think the it's it's all talking points. They've heard these talking points somewhere before. Um, they're just regurgitating those talking points, and they think they're they're actually doing a Bible study. If you quote the Bible enough while you're making your your entire paragraphs of thought, if you reference Bible verses enough, that's definitely a Bible study. That's how these things work. No, so God says, um, He said, "Where the, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that me he that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So God will forgive, have compassion, and pardon. For this, this is why. This is why. This is the explanatory for why God's going to act like this." For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. God will forgive a pardon and uh, allow, allow people to return to him because he's not like a man. That's the context. That's the, that's the context. This, this, is, this is so bad. So Christian Observer says, do you think God can predestine certain events as Michael Heiser believes? And so predestine is a loaded word. Can God bring about certain events he does throughout the Bible all the time. And so what, what does God want? God wants Jonah to go preach to Nineveh. Jonah says, uh-oh, cheese it. And he runs the other way. God's like, okay, I'm going to create a big fish specifically for the purpose of retrieving this guy. I'm going to threaten him with his life. And I'm just going to force him onto the shore. And then he's going to go do the thing that I wanted him to do. Yeah, God sometimes uses overly coercive methods in order to get get through get accomplished what he wants accomplished and if those don't work uh, he has uh, alternatives god wants certain things and so i don't think that um the early jews in the first century as represented by josephus i don't think that they're that far off in their view of god's determination of things god's providence over the world their view was that God has very active providence. God is working all sorts of events. Like Josephus was shipwrecked. He had Paul that was shipwrecked in very similar instances. And a lot of the things that happen are, are attributed to God's providence or God's protection or God's will to get certain events. Uh, the Jewish idea was God had meticulous involvement in daily life. And I think when uh, back on our podcast, when we're talking through various judges, it's, it's not very popular if I just read through uh, various accounts in the Bible, but the judges one is particularly interesting because there, there's a lot of that where we see almost what looks like random happenstance, but there's like a divine hand that's behind these happenstances. And so they're kind of interchangeable within that book. So we do see some examples of this, God's active involvement in the world within the Bible. Together, yes, God is with us. He's the Parakletos, the Holy Spirit is with us and guides us into all truth. But God already knows what's going to happen because he transcends it. He transcends the universe. Okay, that's what people have to understand. He transcends it. Uh, he talked about the upper room, upper room, the betrayal of Judas. That was fulfilling a prophecy of what, brother? Psalm fifty-five, where he said, "He that had uh, he that lifted up his heel against me, 
He that had broken bread with me hath lifted up his heel against, against me. me. Right. This is a prophecy. And actually, if you go back to the psalm, when David was writing this... Yeah, I don't think it's a prophecy. It's, it's, a, it's a shadow that is uh, in the time of Jesus, applied to Jesus. But I, I don't think it's predicting any of this. And so I, th I think he's wrong here. I think this is... Uh, this is uh, it, it's a pretty common Christian talking point, but I don't think it's accurate. The Jews didn't think of prophecy in the, the same way that that they're using this. He was actually writing about Ahithophel. He was actually writing about the betrayal of Ahithophel, but it actually perfectly goes. Okay, you made my argument for me. He was actually writing about something else. Okay, right into this too about the betrayal of Ahithophel. See, Jesus was being acquainted with what David also went through in the betrayal from Ahithophel. And I just want to, and, and we, we wrote it here, just like how you were talking about this Hebrew word, yada, yeah. which it literally means acquaintance or relationships. Like, yes. I just want to, you know, say something from earlier about in Genesis as well. God didn't look at Abraham and say, "Wow, Abraham, that's a good idea. You're going to sacrifice your son. Let me. I'm going to just do that too with my son in the future." Like, no, there was a there was a reason. God knew what was going to happen because He had already purposed it. He had already planned it. Um, should we just give him the gold mine now, or should we just wait? I'm going to come back to John 16:13. Okay, I want to go to Deuteronomy 18, where God says, uh, "They they got a gold mine coming." Israel's fall. He says, when you go into the land of milk and honey, he said, I know that you are going to go back and be turned back and to go into other gods. Read the actual, I paraphrase it. Why don't you read it, brother? Deuteronomy 18. I believe. 20. Let me see. He predicted Israel's demise. He predicted their fall. Yeah, I, th I think that's the same passage that we talked about last time. And the immediate context, if you just read the context, God explains how he knows. Often within the Bible, God will say he knows something and then say why he knows. And our previous podcast was not the fact that there's a method by which God knows, but the fact that the author included that explanation as some sort of signaling to the audience to make them believe what was written there and to actually have give that higher authority. Right, it signified something, and it told the audience something more than just leaving that out would have. The audience might say, "Hey, why did God? How did, how on earth can God know this?" The author sought to tell them because God knows who we are. That way, God can know things we're gonna do. God tests the heart. God knows our character. He predicted the fact that they would break. Covenant? This one right here, brother, Deuteronomy yeah. is about uh, oh, how it's a different it's a different verse. Read that one. That was Deuteronomy thirty one. Yeah, it says, "But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And if thou say in thine heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord hath spoken? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass." That is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But that prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. And what this is saying is, if a man claims to be speaking on behalf of God and it does not come to pass, then God has not given this man a word. But just like how we quoted in the book of Amos, that God only gives a message 
Oh, what does it say, brother? Uh, servants the prophets. He, he reveals the it. Exactly. And so if, if what a man is saying does not come to pass, that means God did not give it. Because only God can give what he knows because he possesses The whole it. concept of prophecy depends on the limitless foreknowledge of God. Amen. I mean, there is no prophecy without the limitless foreknowledge of God. So we have to just completely dismiss that altogether. First Kings 13, we know there was a prophecy given about Josiah, King Josiah that was going to be born. That was Yeah, so this 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 is another thing people do when reading the Bible. They'll take a phrase and say, this is how you know a true and the false prophet, whether God told this person the prophecy or not, if it comes to pass. Okay, sure. That's that, that's probably just a general rule because sometimes God tells prophet things, prophets things that don't come to pass. We talked about examples such as Nineveh. Uh, but how about and King Ahab? God told all the prophets to prophesy King Ahab's going to have victory. And why? Because God was actively trying to trick this guy to go to war. And so it, it was a false prophecy meant to deceive God's enemy, to manipulate his enemy into getting into the situation God wanted him to get into. And then elsewhere in the Bible, it says if, if a prophet is prophesying something, it, this, is, this is actually coming from God, this false prophecy, to test people to see if they're going to follow God or not. So it's, these are not like metaphysical rules of, that you could take to the bank in all situations. They're just general rules that generally God can use false prophets to test people. And he could set up those circumstances with those false prophets to test people. But the general rule for determining the, the, the veracity of a prophet is if the, that prophet's actually saying things that materialize. And yeah, Jonah's, Jonah is a false prophet by that standard, but people have to interject common sense. It's like, okay, it's if that thing came true, that would make God kind of like monstrous. These people go through this huge repentance act and he just kills them anyway to stay true to the word. Now, there, there's, there's, there's other concerns other than making sure the letter of the law always comes true in all circumstances. Uh, God's, God's evaluation of, of a nation, what he's going to do that nation, depends entirely on how they act and how they behave and how they are in the current moment rather than staying true to his word. That's the whole point of Jeremiah 18. God will change based on changing circumstances. Given by the man of God who went to Bethel. Um, that was fulfilled 262 years later, I believe. Uh, Josiah was born. He was the reformer. He said that Josiah was actually going to burn the bones of Jeroboam on the altar. Uh, all these things came to pass, uh, brothers and sisters. Um, Isaiah 45 talks about Cyrus, okay, uh, King Cyrus, um, you know, being commissioned to rebuild. This was, a, this was a Gentile king, okay, prophesied by the prophet Isaiah that he was going to build the temple, the second temple after it was destroyed by the Babylonians, okay. All of these were fulfilled exactly as Isaiah predicted it would be. And this was before Cyrus was even born. Because this was given in 745 something BC, and Cyrus wasn't born until the 400s. I mean, brothers and sisters, you you can't make that up. I mean, you can't you couldn't even invent this book. You couldn't write the Bible as a novel. It would be like 
you couldn't do it because there's too many interconnected uh, prophecies. Right. That you, you, you couldn't even predict it all. If, if God doesn't possible. know the future, then what is the book of Revelation for, brother? It's all about the future. What is it for? All we, about we might as well just... Yeah, we just might, might, might as well throw it away. Okay, so I, I did find the verse I was referencing earlier. Deuteronomy 13.1, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams. And remember, within the Bible, um, prophets used to be dreamers, right? They, they used to be like sorcerers. Uh, they're interchangeable. Dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder. And the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass. He's saying, what if... What if someone comes up to you and he's, he's not a Yahweh worshiper and he says, uh, this is going to happen. And then that thing comes true. <laughs> it says, uh, then the person says, let's go after other gods, which you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord or God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul. And so it did God give that prophet those words is that coming directly from god or is god testing them by just watching what what uh, results in this scenario that, that that is that is a legitimate question but it's it's we do see things in which god uses false prophets for purposes and and in the case of 1 kings 22 that god is actively setting the lie in motion in order to get his uh, results accomplished just cut out the whole book of Revelation. Exactly. Exactly. And then uh, looking at Psalm 119.89, it said, Forever thy word is settled in heaven. Forever. The word of God is settled in heaven. Except for when it comes to Nineveh, apparently. And so it's, it's, it's not like consistent standards that they're using. They're using, they find a phrase that sounds pretty good. Uh, they throw it out. Assume it means their theology, assume it means some sort of metaphysical absolute, and assume that open theists are going to disagree with the verse. Uh, Will Duffy does a thing that uh, if anyone just quotes a verse to him, he'll say like, amen to. It's like, that's great. Or he'll hit, hit like on those comments. Or I don't know if it's actually Will Duffy. It might be Drew McLeod. But uh, that's just their general practice because it's, it's, it's not like the person's making an actual point. They're just throwing out a verse and they assume you've never seen the verse or you don't, they, you have a, they have a irrefutable point by throwing that verse out. I don't know. That's what it feels like is going on here. He said, I'm the Lord. I do not change. You said in Malachi. Yeah, that's it right there. And so the main themes that open. That was half a verse. That was half a verse. Keep reading. He says, I, the Lord do not change. Uh, return to me and I will return to you. He says, uh, you're not destroyed uh, because I do not change. Why does not changing mean someone's not destroyed? Doesn't God destroy a lot of people throughout the Bible? What's the immediate context? Is it is this talking about metaphysical immutability, impassibility, divine simplicity? How does that make sense of context? Remember, just take a snapshot of what they claim the verse is about and then reinsert it into the context when you're reading through the actual context. It makes for some funny results. What theists like to say is, is that there's no way because if, if our free will, if we're truly free, God cannot influence our decisions. There's no way that if we're truly free, God... I've, I've never heard of open theist. I've never heard... May, maybe Thomas Ord. But I've never heard of open theist say this. What are they talking about? You know, like open theists love to say that. I What I actually think happens is since they don't interact with open theists, 
and they're getting all their talking points from other anti-open theist videos. They're taking what other anti-open theist videos claim about open theists and then representing it as their general experience as well. Like this, this is how like uh, a lot of times this fake scholarship comes to pass. I was reading on uh, Twitter, uh, not the other day, uh, about uh, World War One Aboriginal trackers. And uh, apparently there's some sort of myth that's going around that there's a bunch of Aboriginal trackers brought from Australia to go track during, I think it was actually the Boer Wars, uh, Boer Wars in South Africa, and about how then they were denied re-entry into Australia. But when, when the, the authors started looking into all the sources, they were like all self-referential, and it seemed to be completely fabricated. And the trackers that they did find were, of course, buried in Australia, where because they are naturalized citizens, they're natural citizens, they, they're, they're not naturalized, that they were citizens of Australia, they're definitely allowed re-entry to. And so it's because all their references were self-referential and it was just coming from nowhere, uh, these types of myths perpetuate without any actual sources behind them. They start referencing these, these previous, it's, it's like the FBI warrants. It's like uh, somebody, uh, FBI will leak to the press. Oh, we think uh, Trump is a Russian stooge. Uh, the, the press will put it in the newspaper, say Trump is a Russian stooge from, we got an inside source that says it. And then they'll take that information and they'll go to a judge and get a warrant against him saying, hey, look, we got this. Uh, this is our source here. Uh, New York Times is reporting this or something like that. It, it's self-referential. It, they're, they're, they're creating their own narrative and ref, it, it, there's actually no source. There's no real source behind this narrative. God could possibly know what we are going to do. See, that's just not that, that there's a fallacy in that. There's a there's a. There's a disconnect in that. I can drop this, this marker. God's going to know whether or not I'm going to drop this marker. But I'm still making the decision to drop that marker. Amen. I did that. God did not make me drop that marker. Uh, the guy's God like, amen. God did not make me drop this marker. I dropped it. Amen. Did God know it was going to fall? Yes, of course. The guy's like, amen. God did not influence me in any way to drop this. And so I dropped it. That is the foreknowledge of God. Amen. God foresees the end from the beginning. What verse is that, brother? That's 46.10. Isaiah 46.10. Exodus 3.19. Exodus 3.19. They, they said they have a gold mine somewhere. I'd like to get to it. So I, I wish there was like a little, they do like a hand wave or something in the video so we could go straight to that because we're already hour, hour 30 minutes. But get, get to your gold mine. God said to Moses, there, this is another very, very important scripture. God says to Moses, I know that Pharaoh will not let you go. I believe this was after the, I forget what it was. Brother, the, the, so right now what they're doing is they're burning down a straw man. They said, God, God can't influence decisions. Open theists say God can't influence people. God's, open theists say God can't know future free actions. Well, look right here. Here's God in the Bible knowing a future free will action of a person. Yeah. Third plague, the second or third plague. 319. It was either the water turning to blood. There's 10 of them, and I always forget the order. It's right before it turns, um, Moses' rod turns into a serpent. Okay. He said, I know 
no matter what you do. It's not that these guys don't know the Bible. They, they seem to be very familiar with the Bible. I'm sure as street preachers, they spend a lot of time reading and talking about the Bible. It's just uh, some concepts slip their mind. They're, they're focused on these talking points rather than digesting and understanding the text. You can throw the, the rod on the ground and become a serpent. I know that Pharaoh's not going to let you go. Was Pharaoh a free creature? Of course he was. He's a free moral agent. Kevin's in the house. Uh, hello, Kevin. I've prayed for your safety. Yeah, God predicted that Pharaoh was not going to let Moses or the people of Israel go. So that was another, that was another prophecy that depended upon a human decision. The outcome depended upon a human decision. Pharaoh had to make the conscious decision not to let the children of Israel go. Yet, God was able to accurately... We got to fast forward. We got to fast forward. God, you're in this box and you're not coming out because we can't change. We can't have you coming out here changing what, you know... We'll, we'll give you the characteristics that we like. Yeah. This is a mischaracterization of God. They're forming their own God. This is a mischaracterization of God. If you think somehow that God's knowledge is limited or that God cannot know the future or that God learns along with us. See, that's another thing. God never learns anything. If he learns something, then he's not all-knowing. God never learns anything. So I, we could probably go through this video if we were real gluttons for punishment and find all the times within the video that they've specifically talk about God learning things or making decisions, uh, they just use it in their normal language. And then they'll turn around and say, God never learns anything. I just confidently, confidently and boldly. It's just like, they, they just don't, Calvinist, that's actually pretty funny. I grew up in Calvinist churches. I'm not, not being a Calvinist. And you'd listen to the sermons and they'll talk one way about God when they're going through the Bible, like normal, rational people reading the Bible. And then when they do their topical sermons, they'll talk a completely different way about God. It's it's like night and day. It's it's Calvinists, they don't actually believe their own theology. And so there's going to be a huge disconnect depending on the subject, the points that they're trying to make, especially if they're doing like a practical sermon about, let's say it's about lust or adultery or premarital sex or something like that. They're going to be talking way differently about God and our behavior and how to act and, and how we choose things. They're going to be talking a lot differently than if they were talking about soteriology or if they're talking about uh, God's predestination or a topical sermon like that. It's, it's, it's real funny just to watch those disconnects. I can't know everything and then learn something tomorrow. Right. 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 I either know everything or I don't. Right. So I can't. I can't know everything about everything, and then, oh, I just learned something new. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> you, a know-it-all can never say, I didn't know that. The Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. Yeah. And God doesn't lie. Deuteronomy uh, 31, brother. Let's go. Let's go to Deuteronomy 31. Let's take a look at that scripture. Deuteronomy 31, verse... Uh, it was 31... We didn't actually write on the board. It was 3120. 31. Deuteronomy 3120. Let's read that. Yep, that's right. 
Deuteronomy 31, verse 20. For when I shall have brought them into the land which I swear unto their fathers, that floweth with milk and honey. And so this is just the, the point that we talked about uh, on the previous podcast. That we point out, yeah, it, the, the methodology by for how God knows this future event is described in the text. And it's not exhaustive, eternal, unfalsifiable, um, it, uh, non-discursive knowledge of all things. It's, it's not nothing like that. It's God knows these people's heart. He says, I know these things because I, I know your character. And so this is definitely not something they should be quoting in an anti-open theist video. We'll try to skip forward. Maybe they got a different point. For he remembered that they were but a flesh, and wind that passeth away and cometh not again. How oft did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They limited the Holy One of Israel. What happened? Oh, how, how does one limit the Holy One of Israel? Huh, how does that happen? They're, they're going to say it's like a superficial limiting or something like that. I don't know. What happened, brother? Because... That, that, that passage is about Numbers 11. What happened in Numbers 11? Do you remember what happened? Let's find out. They said, is God able to furnish a table in the wilderness? Can he give us flesh to eat? These guys seem, seem very agitated. They've been agitated this whole time. Their, their whole little spiel like, I don't even know why I'm making this video. This is the dumbest video that I've ever made in my entire life. Why are we talking about open theism? Open theism is the worst. Is God able to feed us? Are the, are the flocks and the herds of the earth going to have to be slaughtered Amen. so that we can eat? Amen. They, they say God can't learn anything. And then they read verses about Israel provoking God to anger. Huh. I, there, there might be a disconnect in your theology, my friends. There, there might be. Uh, maybe. Maybe. What you do is when you're an open theist, brothers and sisters, you are limiting God and you are doubting God. That's what it is. You're doubting God. You're doubting God's ability to know something. And that, brothers and sisters, is a sin. I'm just going <laughs> to... Uh, it's, it's so funny. God uh, criticizes the false idols. And what does he criticize them for being? Immutable. That they, they have eyes and they can't see. They have ears they can't hear. Uh, they have fingers and they can't touch. You know, these types of things. They, they can't have, they can't experience reality around them. They're, they're stone idols. They're immutable. And so the Calvinists will take God and they'll say, oh, God also is immutable. They'll turn him into this stone, unfeeling, unthinking, impassable creature. And then they'll say, open theists, you guys are putting God in a box. Well, how about how about this, this eternal coffin of simplicity without change or predicates? That that might that might be a bigger box if I was if I was like a, like a box judge and I'm judging boxes. But of course, they don't care. It's. It's all a rhetorical point. The rhetorical point is this. We don't like open theism, so we're going to uh, call it bad, and we're going to take all these verses that say kind of bad things, and we're going to say, oh, the open theist is just like this verse, and uh, therefore you shouldn't like open theism because it's bad because we already said it. Come out and say it. It is a sin to doubt. It's a lack of faith. Mm -hmm. It is a lack of confidence in God, your Savior. You're placing God in a box. You're limiting him. You're doubting him. Whatsoever is not a faith is sin, the, the Bible says. Amen, brother. And you know what? It's, it's, as you just made that good point, um, talking about doubting, if God doesn't know the future, how can we be assured of our salvation in the future, of what he's doing? 
if we can't trust that God knows the future, then how can we have the assurance to tell somebody to follow our God, but he doesn't know the future? He doesn't know. So how can we trust that God is going to lead us in the good and right way if he doesn't know if the way himself? Know. If he doesn't know. So what's the implication of what they're saying here? So let, let's pretend open theism is true. Uh, that'll just be our, our thought experiment. Open theism is true. God doesn't know the future, quote unquote. Um, so that's let's assume that's true. Now, these guys have access to that truth now in our thought experiment. How should they live their lives? What should they do? Should they be like, woe is me. God doesn't know the future. How can we know anything? We shouldn't try to convert anyone to Christianity because they that gives them no assurances of anything. They're like, what what reality are they living in in which that would be an appropriate, proper, grown-up, uh, mentally stable reaction to God not knowing the future? What world what world does this exist? It only exists in their theological. I, I don't actually think that they would be this neurotic if if it turned if they believed open theism was the truth of reality. Their neuroticism would magically disappear because it, they're not actually neurotic. Uh, they are actually just inconsistent with their beliefs. They don't actually believe what they're saying. These are talking points to try to uh, convince, to poison the well, to to dis disparage open theism. I they're they're not this neurotic. They they have to pretend to be this neurotic in order to make these talking points. It's pretend neuroticism. I I guess I guess they 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 fit well in with uh, the 21st century. Are we in the 21st century yet? 20, 21st century. Um, they, they'll fit right in with uh, dyed-haired uh, leftists. No. If he doesn't, what does it say in Job? He says he knows, Job 23, he says, I, I, he knows the way that I take. And when I am tried, I shall come forth as what? Gold. If God doesn't know the path that we are going to walk, we cannot trust him to take us in the right way. Would Job? If you don't have a tracker on your wife's cell phone and then she knows that you're tracking her every movement, you cannot trust her. She, there, she could do other things. If you're not meticulously tracking her and her actively understanding she's being tracked and all her messages are being read at all times, you cannot trust your wife. You can't trust anyone. Yeah. <laughs> this is neuroticism. That was Job what? Job 23. Job 23. Uh, but, uh, don't get me on the verse on that one. He said, I know the way, he knows the way that I take him when, he, when, I, uh, when I'm trying to support his goal. And then this is the one they love to latch on to. Brother, let's go to Jeremiah 32, 35 real quick and look at that. Then we'll come back to Job. This is the one they love to latch on to right here. Major open theists right here. Yeah, yeah. Who are you talking to? We we don't know who you're talking to, and we already talked about this Jeremiah passage, so we're we are going to skip it. Um, it's probably not a passage open theists should latch onto unless you're dealing with Calvinists, which the Calvinists don't have a good explanation of this verse. But uh, legitimately, it could be said that the commandment never entered God's mind, rather than the act. I never thought you should do something. I, I never okay. thought you would commit. Such Fast forwarding. This, this is key because this is basically the cherry on the top. This is like, you know. 
Is this the gold that they're talking about? Are we finally here? We got some gold? It's over for them. Oh, um, oh, here we go. Okay. Find another false doctrine to collapse onto. Right. It's not going to be this one. Read this. Oh, man. John 16, 13. This is it right here. It says, <clears throat> How be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, yeah. for he shall not speak of himself, but who, but whatsoever he sh he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things, things to come. come. <laughs> He's gonna show you things to come. Why? Because the that the verse just said we're gonna be omniscient. Did it? Did everyone catch that? This is another like uh, we are omniscient verses that he's gonna teach us all the truth. We're gonna have all the truth. We're we are gonna be omniscient as creatures, right? If if there's a verse that said God knows all truth. Uh, they would take that and say, oh, that means God knows all truth propositions from eternity to eternity. Uh, but if, if it's about man, man learning all truth, you know, that's we just read over like normal. It didn't even flag in their mind um, that that verse would be taken by them completely differently if it was about God. But let, let's, let's see what their actual point is. Spirit knows, and God is a spirit. And it's... And what does it say in, in Corinthians? Is he that has the Spirit of God knows the mind of the Spirit? Yeah, amen. He that has the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God within us. Okay, so God is going to tell us things that will happen in the future. <gasps> oh no! Oh, Treebeard, Treebeard over here. Uh, let's pull him up. He says it's so over. Like bros, bros, pack it up. Ah, pack it up. Then close down the channel. Scrub everything. God will tell us things that are going to happen in the future. Ah, oh. <laughs> Jeff says he's going to Florida in December. He's he's showing me things to come. No, Jeff, don't you understand? If God tells us anything about the future, that means open theism is false. So that's let's just talk basic open theism. If God learns anything at any point of time, ever makes a decision chooses between multiple worlds to actualize and molism if that choice ever happens open theism is true open theism is not falsified by god being able to tell us one thing that is going to happen in the future that it's irrelevant it's if god if god wanted to create an entire world of robots and force them into all actions forever and know everything that's going to happen in the future open theists don't say oh that's that's something God can't do or anything like that. Open theism is still true because God is open. God's making decisions. God's having new thoughts. God is gaining information. He's gaining experiences. God is experiencing things, experiencing the world. Open theism is true if open theism is true for God, regardless if God could tell us one thing in the future. That, that's, that's not the falsifiable test for open theism. But it is falsifiable for close theism if God makes decisions, if God learns. And how about this where it says that God is going to teach us. Oh, man, it sounds like uh, God teaching is an action. He's going to guide us. It says he'll speak to us. And and, and it's, that's, that all sounds sequential, right? Huh. Uh, all these things sound like open theism in context. That God is gaining experiences. God is doing interaction. God is not completely independent of the universe and has 
codependencies in the, in the philosophical sense with the universe and that he has relationships with material beings. That's what it sounds like. Open theism is true. John 16, 13. They just read it for us. Us knows. And it reveals things to us. It says, I'm going to reveal you things to come. So, so maybe this was our gold. Uh, when, when, we, when we started this uh, episode, we were talking about great expectations. We, we wanted something new and original from these guys. They're, they're striking out on their own. There's plenty of anti-open theist videos out there. And uh, we're saying, please, please let this not be just a random rehash of various videos. This is new. This is, this is gold. Um, I've never heard someone make the argument open theism is false because John 16, 13 says he's going to tell us things that are to come. I've never heard it done. This is brand new. Congratulations, nameless Seattle street preachers. Congratulations, you've done it. All right, so that's probably a good ending point for us tonight. Uh, getting that gold nugget. We'll, we'll let them talk a little bit more. And if they change the subject, it's over. We'll have to cut there. And uh, may, uh, we'll just assume that the rest of this video doesn't exist for another 20 minutes. I, don't, I can't imagine what they talk about. Why? Because he knows what's going to happen. Exactly. He can't reveal us things unless he knows what's going to happen. John 16, 13. And this is in the context of Jesus uh, speaking to his, um, his disciples. And um, it says, uh, sadness will turn to joy because the... The, uh, All right, we're gonna have to cut there. That's it's. You guys lost my attention. All right, uh, Christian Observer says you should be more active with the Discord community. I'll be busy like the next week, but I'll try to be try to be on more at, more often on Discord. Maybe I'll try to log in tonight. Let's see. I like to occasionally talk to you about some of the subjects in your book. Yeah, absolutely. So if uh, anyone has questions or comments, uh, put that down below or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook group. Thank you for listening. And for anyone who's bought my book, as we talked about, just leave a review on uh, Amazon. I, I think it helps out. I don't know.